Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. A couple of weeks ago I went to the startup fair at the Build Lab and I met Dr. Marion McNabb who runs the Cannabis Community Care and Research Network uh, along with her partner in crime, Randy McCaffrey. And as the three of us were talking, we talked a lot about a lot of issues in the ongoing regulation process as the state gets ready to roll out uh, the legal uh, legal cannabis, which was voted for in a referendum in uh, late 2016. And um, they're in the process of advocating uh, on that law. And so we talked a lot about the social disparities and who could enter the market. Uh, we talked about research licenses and the potential to treat opioid addiction uh, with marijuana. So this conversation is really an extension of that spontaneous conversation we were having a couple of weeks ago. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk to Dr. McNabb. And so on this episode, uh, Evan and I uh, go and parse through some of these issues. Uh, the one thing I wanted to note is that they're holding an event on Monday at Roxbury Community College, February 26th. Uh, there are scholarships to go to uh, avoid the costs, and you can uh, get some information on that at the end of this episode from Dr. McNabb. And uh, it's being run with the Students for Sensible Drug Policy. And so the leader of that organization, Joe Gilmore, is going to be on our podcast sometime in the coming month. Uh, so before you can listen to this uh, this podcast and you can get a groundwork for what exactly that event is going to be like on Monday, and if you so choose, you can go to that event on Monday, and following that, you will hear an interview from uh, from Mr. Gilmore. So uh, thanks so much for listening to this episode. We hope you really enjoy the conversation, and we hope to see you on Monday at their event at Roxbury Community College. podcast team to kick off the episode. So can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, Cannabis Community Care and Research Network? Yes. So thank you for having me here today. Yeah. Um, so Cannabis Community Care and Research Network, or we call it C3RN, is a startup company. Uh, we started about a year ago, um, and we're aiming to advance uh, the science and research related to cannabis from a variety of perspectives, from health, social, and economic uh, perspectives. Traditionally, um, researchers and healthcare providers have faced difficulties in accessing funding for research related to cannabis and a lot of regulatory hurdles due to the federal uh, scheduling of cannabis as a Schedule One drug. So we decided to, um, in the new legal uh, environment here in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. when the laws uh, passed last year, um, decided, well, this could be a really good opportunity to see if we can actually start to conduct some studies and, and get some funding for it in a real world environment. Um, and so we, over the last year, have, have really worked um, at advocacy level, uh, at the state level, um, advocating for more research, as well as um, trying to create a virtual Cannabis Center of Excellence in the right. Commonwealth. So the Cannabis Center of Excellence, we're going to come across that in, in your story here, but can you take us back to, you studied at BU, you were studying public health. At what point did you develop the interest in cannabis research and advocacy? I imagine it was before the referendum and before the new legal framework. Interestingly, after. <laughs> really? Okay, all right. Yeah, all right. so um, I, in 2010, joined Boston University School of Public Health to get okay. my Doctor of Public Health degree. Uh, so I was working part-time, <clears throat> and my degree was um, focused on global health and sexual reproductive health and rights. Um, so I worked... Um, in many countries, in Africa and Asia and Haiti, um, to expand training for healthcare providers, uh, work on using digital technologies for health, 
um, that really focused on HIV, AIDS, family planning, maternal child health um, at the community health worker and at the uh, uh, sort of state level and national level healthcare system. Um, and so I had a pretty successful global health career, graduated from BU last year. I was a part-time uh, student and also full-time worker at an organization called Pathfinder International. And we, you know, advanced sexual reproductive health and rights around the world. And uh, with the new administration, um, you know, was not as friendly towards uh, my, line, my previous line of work. So decided that, you know, I was going to try and find a new career. Uh, and in January of last year, uh, after, you know, it, the voters passed uh, cannabis, recreational adult use cannabis, um, decided that I would try and just take a leap and see how um, I could translate some of my skills and the training I had at BUSPH towards the cannabis industry. Right. So this was January 2017 when you made that jump. Um, at what point, I, I know you were part of a competition that launched the, uh, I'm going to get the name wrong, but can, is it Cannabis Center for Excellence or Research yep. Center for Excellence? Yep. Um, at what point did this competition happen? Um, can you tell us about that event and, and what came of it? Sure. Um, yeah, so um, Boston University Questrom School of Business um, took the leadership in being I think probably the first university of, of the size to actually host an ancillary cannabis business startup competition. So they put a call out for uh, applications in the summer of last year, and you had to be a BU student, faculty member, or alumni to apply. And so we decided to uh, pitch our company and the Virtual Cannabis Center of Excellence. So we went through several rounds of interviews and uh, were shortlisted. I think there were 17 different groups that applied, and five were shortlisted as finalists. And so we presented our um, our project, our you know very short six minute pitch, right. uh, in November of last year. Okay. And um, then since won the competition. Fantastic, yeah. cool. And so how does how exactly does that project relate to C3RN? Is it a component of it? Um, it's a very good question. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's basically a project of our company. So um, what we're intending to do is, is our company, C3RN, we offer consulting services and research design and, you know, develop of analytic tools and digital health tools for cannabis. Uh, however, we consider the, the center of excellence to be, you know, sort of our main goal and our philanthropic contribution as a company to the cannabis okay. uh, industry or healthcare industry. So we are, um, you know, thinking about this from a, a, a very uh, neutral, governed, um, and scientifically driven standpoint. And so currently, right now, trying to find the best strategic advisors and academic um, partners, uh, as well as health, healthcare partners and cannabis industry partners, to be able to form this center of excellence. So we don't right. believe that, you know, C3RN is not a center of excellence, but we're aiming to right. create one. And then, can you just explain briefly the status of three, C3RN uh, as a company? Because uh, I think uh, we had made the mistake of assuming it to be a nonprofit. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you explain what the status is and how that works? Right. So, C3RN is a public benefit corporation. Okay. So, it's a fairly new type of corporation that has uh, responsibility, not only a fiscal responsibility, but a social justice responsibility or a public mm -hmm. benefit responsibility. Uh, so, it's a, a sort of more... Um, uh, what we call it, social enterprise type uh, okay. business venture. Uh, however, the center of excellence will have to be a nonprofit 
uh, entity okay. in our minds uh, because it should be scientifically driven and should be governed neutrally by the right parties um, and so and not necessarily be, be profit driven so we're looking to kind of create this new nonprofit and, and spin it off okay so uh, what role has C3RN played in um, developing the regulatory framework for the uh, recreational market here in Massachusetts? Great, great question. Uh, so we have been advocating uh, for the last year. So we've testified publicly over probably 25 times. Uh, first at the um, Joint Committee for Marijuana Policy that was formed at the state level uh, to review the law. Um, and then throughout that process, we also have, have testified several times at the local levels in different cities. Um, and our message is usually uh, requesting, considering advancing research and allowing, um, you know, for research licenses to be one part of that regulatory framework. Um, but not only research licenses, they, there's a research agenda that's set forth in the in the law, and that's. Uh, you know, on very important topics such as impaired driving or youth prevention. Um, but what we thought was we're in Massachusetts. Uh, there's, you know, hundreds of universities um, and uh, centers of excellence and, and healthcare institutions that why would you not want to take advantage of the wealth of knowledge and um, academic rigor here. So. Uh, we've testified, like I said, at the, the state level, um, and then we moved to some of the hardest hit cities by the opioid epidemic in Massachusetts and by the drug war. Mm -hmm. So we've testified at the Lawrence City Council, um, we've testified in Methuen, we've written papers about Holyoke and how all of these uh, cities and towns, if they embraced the new uh, legal adult use industry in a science-driven and you know right. sort of targeted way um, that you could really turn around some of that poverty and some of that uh, real you know crime that has been happening in those areas right can you can you talk about the advocacy in terms of those going to these municipalities because one of the things that's interesting about this law and the politics of it is that uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there are municip municipalities can exempt themselves or can can get out of it. They have to be in support of the law. And so can you describe the role of the advocacy work that you do in the municipalities just to get the buy-in in the first place mm -hmm. uh, and how that differs from the sort of pre-referendum um, uh, understanding of cannabis as, as purely medical? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So each municipality um, has the authority if the town or that locality, majority of the popular vote was against cannabis, mm -hmm. the municipality can outright ban. Mm -hmm. um, and if not, they have to go through a whole different process, um, you know, putting on the ballot, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, some of the work that we've done is, you know, in all different towns, there's, the, you know, every every town is very different in how they work politically, mm -hmm. uh, but also um, just a lot of uh, a, a need for more education on cannabis and the medical value of it. And I think a lot of towns understand the medical value now too, but really fear that uh, having adult use cannabis will continue to, you know, uh, promote the the drug war um, and so a lot of the work that we've done is educating on what the real literature is that youth consumption does not go up uh, that there are effective youth prevention programs that you know the state is looking at impaired driving and all the other concerns that are typically at the local level 
Um, and we've been, you know, sort of reviewing with um, at each town that we've gone to, reviewing that local situation on healthcare, mm-hmm. and how many qualifying conditions for cannabis, medical cannabis, um, how many, uh, you know, patients there are actually in that locality, um, to be able to <clears throat> explain, you know, in the support of in an adult use environment, some patients uh, you'll will have easier access currently. It's a you know can be slightly cost prohibitive to get a medical license. Mm-hmm. Um, you know there's some fears that although the information is anonymized and you know at that state level, but there's still fears that of employment or you know um, which you know obviously the employment will be protected, but um, you know there are still some of those fears out there. So. So if the real value of cannabis is in the medicinal qualities of it, uh, why is legalizing it recreationally important? So, I mean, because one, recreationally, it's a right. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a plant. It's uh, nobody's ever died from cannabis. Mm-hmm. It's a natural stress reliever for many. Um, you know, why would we have legal alcohol and not necessarily mm-hmm. legal cannabis? Um, cannabis is much safer than alcohol is. Um, so it's a it's another way for people to be able to have relaxation and their rights in a recreational environment. Um, so it's important to consider that, but it's also important um, just for access for medical patients. So again, being able to um, you know purchase in any um, purchase much easier is really important. However, the medical side of it and the medical cannabis side of it, I think. There's a lot more improved counseling we could do with patients on which strains are right for which disease conditions. And so it's still very important to preserve the medical program mm-hmm. um, and then build in more um, rigorous research designs or more data collection so that we can continue to drive the field forward. Um, right. Under these research licenses, and I know a lot of your work deals with advocating around those, uh, is that the only part of the medical scheme that's going to be retained? Or if someone is, gets a prescription from a doctor, are they still going to have to go through the process of, of getting a card and going through those expenses? Or if, is there no specific reason? Can they just go and, and buy it at a store? And So the medical well? program will be... So currently, the medical program is was uh, before the CCC, the Cannabis Control right. Commission, was established. Is managed by the Department of Public Health, and so that program will remain intact and will be moved over to the Cannabis Control Commission. So the the research license category is something we would consider separate. Okay. Um, and we've actually recommended for the research license not to impact either of the medical or recreational market. This should be something voluntary. Uh, should not take away from patient supply. Um, right. Shouldn't mandate anybody to do this. Um, so the medical program, you know, and, and that will be transitioned over the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. Right now, as the adult use regulations are being finalized um, in the next couple of weeks before March 15th, mm-hmm. um, then we'll really know how that research license category will be played out. Um, the category came as a draft and I mean, came out as part of the draft. And then over the last month, the Cannabis Control Commission has had several public uh, listening sessions to get comments on that draft regulatory framework. So the research license category was very small and bare bones. And at C3RN, we did uh, do a lot of review of other states, the experiences of research licenses in other states, what worked well, what didn't, and why and how those lessons could be applied here. Right. And some of them are quite interesting, um, you know, uh, one being, you know, academics and mm-hmm. universities like BU 
um, you know, they want to study cannabis. However, right. a lot of the work that they do <clears throat> on other projects are federally funded. Right. And so it puts that university at risk mm-hmm. of losing federal funding if they participate actively in research. Just was on a phone call this morning uh, talking about a university in Washington who said that the university wouldn't wouldn't be able to protect their mm-hmm. their academics. And so that's the entire genesis and reason why we wanted to form a virtual cannabis center of excellence. And as a company that is independent, although I am right. a long running academic <laughs> right, right, right. and have been affiliated <laughs> with a lot of universities, I just realized that you know uh, allowing or creating a, a third party entity of sorts. Um, that would allow researchers to be able to participate actively where that institution doesn't have to feel fear of losing funding um, would help uh, different universities and and researchers um, still be able to participate without putting their entire brick and mortar and funding scheme at risk. How how has that happened to date either, you know, before any states uh, legalized recreationally and then thereafter? Uh, how did universities mitigate this risk in order to do the research? I mean, for instance, just the whole notion of getting medical marijuana was dependent on some level of obviously mm-hmm. academic insight, right. which it, which was impossible to do. So, so how did that his, like historically over over a decade or two play out? Right. It's a uh, this is the big sticky wicket here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the U.S. government has um, only allowed. Uh, researchers to use cannabis that is cultivated by one university in Mississippi to study its medicinal value. And that cannabis, uh, that process for getting uh, approval through the National Institutes of Health and the regular uh, sort of U.S. government research funding channels um, has a lot of barriers, mm-hmm. including review. You've got, you know, be approved by the DEA, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a lot of red tape that goes in and uh, to conduct a clinical trial will take you know sometimes three times longer than mm-hmm. it would for any other disease area. Right. So researchers have been you know a couple really strong advocates have been fighting for years, um, and just last year the first uh, clinical trial for studying medical cannabis and PTSD in veterans was finally launched. Mm-hmm. However, one of the major universities that was a study site in this trial pulled out at the last minute because the cannabis was not going to be representative of uh, what is currently available in the market and therefore the therapeutic value that would be reported at the end would not be right Mm -hmm. correct so um, now the DEA and the US government is starting to release some of these uh, restrictions and offer research licenses for uh, different cultivation facilities where they could be studied however that process still has not really come fully to date um, but there are a few colleagues, you know, uh, Dr. Gruber at Harvard is one who's mm-hmm. been using um, sort of this NIDA money, which is the National Institute of Drug Abuse money, right. uh, to conduct studies. Um, but, you know, like any other researcher, you, you know, however you're funded by, uh, they approve your research protocols. And she's an excellent scientist um, and, you know, has now moved on to um, start to study the medical benefits and just right. receive several grants. Going so. off that, um, what are some of the key findings that um, the research has found so far? So um, one of the best places for the state of the science evidence right now, so the National Academies of Science, Medicine, and Engineering um, uh, organized, must have been like 50 different leading researchers mm-hmm. to do a um, 
a literature review, a comprehensive uh, systematic literature review to see what the medical benefits and health risks are for cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it, this was published um, January of last year, actually right when we started to, <laughs> it was perfect timing. It's like, yeah. here's yeah. our baseline, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. here's the baseline of the health benefits and risks. Yeah. Um, and so they published that. It's a 300 and almost 400 page document. <laughs> That goes through, they, they review 10,000 articles, and it has a very long list by disease and health condition, mm-hmm. what the evidence is, um, and is it conclusive, is it somewhat, you know, or does yeah. it need to have more, uh, more research? So um, there are some, some key findings. Um, that one, it's an effective substitute for chronic pain, mm-hmm. um, and that um, also in uh, cancer-related patients for you know um, nausea um, and a few other key findings. So I would I would look it up. It's called the Health Effects of Cannabis and Cannabinoids, mm-hmm. Health and Health Effects of Cannabis and Cannabinoids Report of 2017. But a lot of the studies um, that have been done to date have been in animal models and mm-hmm. some internationally in um, you know human populations. So there's still a lot more work to do. Um, and hopefully now with the research license here, we can move forward. So, so in terms of the research to be done uh, medically, uh, and then also if we're just trying to keep track of how this progresses recreationally, one of the big difficulties is that you obviously have a very large black market mm-hmm. that already exists and we're trying to legalize a market. And one of the things that you mentioned is it's important to, to have an understanding of the sources. Um, you said that corrupted one study that, that had been done, right? And so uh, keeping track of the sources and the strains, how do you do that in an environment where there is already like a long-running black market, people who have suppliers that they prefer, and all of a sudden you're trying to legalize the whole thing and bring it into, bring it into the light of the day. How do you make the, the legal market competitive enough so you can shine a light and actually see what's going on? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I feel like the Cannabis Control Commission has done a really excellent job of mm-hmm. trying to address this issue at the state level through taxation, through uh, creating avenues and opportunities for those that operated in the illicit market to have participation in the regulated market. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big debate that's currently going on now and how to preserve small business and how to get access for people those that were disproportionately affected by the drug war or, mm-hmm. you know, of the illicit market into the market. Right. That's actually the topic of our, one of the topics of our big event on Monday right. uh, called Cannabis Community First, uh, which is really looking at how uh, do we support as a community, an academic community, a policy and cannabis community uh, how do we drive science and best practices and data that will help um, shed more light on these things and what kind of data do we need and what is a positive proactive agenda to move forward for supporting that illicit market, not only from the economic perspective, but also from a medical cannabis access perspective. Because mm. um, many um, you know, populations and and some of the harder hit cities don't have as much access to healthcare, there's major health disparities, there's uh, diseases or health conditions that are specific to racial or ethnic makeup um, that you know really should be highlighted and are often overlooked. On that note, the event that's coming up on Monday uh, deals with um, a lot of the social disparities that you're referencing right there uh, in terms of incorporating people from uh, from the existing market into the process. So can you talk about some of the 
uh, more technical ways in which that's being done. Um, and then also, can you just highlight the discussion that's going on around that? Because you're uh, espousing one point of view, I'm sure, when you go to these public meetings, but I'm sure that you hear a lot of uh, interesting opinions coming that uh, from the other side that oppose you or that aren't, are just are not as conscious of some of the social disparities. So what is the debate like right now as we get ready to roll this out in June? So the debate is, is pretty heated. Right. I would imagine, <laughs> I would imagine, yeah. Um, and we as C3RN come from more of the science side and right. sort of the best practices side. Uh, <clears throat> I think what we, um, so the dis discussion right now is, is small business and how can small business enter into the market in this regulatory structure? Um, and how are some of the ways that, um, you know, and it's not only those that have been in the illicit market, but those that have just been disproportionately affected by the drug war. So um, how do we engage people of color? How do we engage women, veterans, mm -hmm. disabled, LGBTQ, um, and, and have meaningful and productive engagement in the industry? So the Cannabis Control Commission is, um, and several advocates have been fighting in a number of ways and advocating in a number of ways. Um, such as social uh, consumption licenses or on-site bring your own cannabis okay. uh, licenses that would allow small cultivators to, you know, at least sell. Um, Co-ops are a big one um, in supporting small businesses to form cooperatives and mm -hmm. uh, being able to engage in the market. Um, there's a big debate about delivery-only retail licenses um, and. I think the counter arguments are, um, you know, that it uh, can be difficult for a brick and mortar institution to be able to compete with uh, when they have invested significant amount of capital mm. to be able to compete with some of these other forms of, you know, selling cannabis. Um, and so that's what I've seen at the as the, you know, sort of big debates um, on our end as C3RN stance. It's, uh, you know, I think both of these, everybody will have to be able to operate in the system. And I think the CCC is being very thoughtful about how to make sure that, you know, uh, when adult use sales, um, you know, flip over, that there's still cannabis on the market, that there is a, still a patient supply and that small businesses would um, be able to have access. One of the cool things um, that we, um, you know, and again, our focus of the event on Monday is really about what are the data standards and research questions that are around this, mm -hmm. um, and what's a positive, uh, productive research agenda moving forward, as well as how can we monitor these things over time? What are the indicators that you look at for small business participation um, and diversity requirements? So the state has come up with the diversity uh, program mm -hmm. so to fast track licensure for people um, you know from those marginalized populations right. um, as well as uh, creating a fund that would be able to support small businesses through mentorship training opportunities and business planning and um, uh, different ways to actively engage in the industry we're really grateful that uh, Tashonda Vincent Lee, who's mm -hmm. a leading advocate in the field and uh, worked with Tito Jackson on his campaign, will be the moderator for the event. Mm -hmm. And she's currently um, uh, kind of doing a, a lay of the land of which organizations are working in this area uh, to be able to share with the Cannabis Control Commission next week. Um, so that, you know, we, she's starting to build an inventory of what are the assets, quote unquote, um, and, and the different experts and community groups on the ground that are really trying to uh, be supportive in this effort. So right. 
our uh, our event on Mondays, you can think about it like a cannabis skills and science fair. <laughs> uh, so all of the organizations that we have asked to be there and have graciously agreed, and we're very excited to have them, are really focused on empowering skills for people that are interested in getting into that industry, and if not giving skills, giving knowledge about how to get those skills. Uh, So we'll have people there, groups there that are looking at, you know, effective home cultivation to maximize your yield, and, um, you know, how do you ensure that? and or the electricity requirements. We'll also have THC staffing, which how do you get a job in the cannabis industry? Or um, you know, how do you do great advocacy at the local level? What do you need to know when you're going to get a license and working with city councils? So we're hoping that you know, by bringing these groups together, it kind of kickstarts the, uh, the work that you know, Tashanda and others uh, will be doing moving forward. And hopefully we'll be a part of that. So you just mentioned um one of the key, I think, parts of the debate, which is, um, so to bring, I guess, these marginalized communities into the industry, uh, you mentioned on-site cannabis consumption, Um, and I just read that not only um, is Charlie Baker opposed to that, but also uh, Attorney General uh, Mara Healy. Um, And I was wondering, just more broadly, how uh, is Massachusetts planning to navigate that legal gray area of, uh, you know, consuming cannabis on-site and also um, consuming cannabis for tourists who maybe come to the state to take advantage of the legal market. Right. So that that's the biggest hot button topic yeah. right now. Um, I can't say how Massachusetts and the Cannabis Control Commission will react. All I can say is that starting on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday next week, all day, they have uh, open public debates among themselves about the comments and about these issues. Mm-hmm. So um, it'll be very interesting to watch Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday next week. It's uh, publicly live streamed. Um, all of the videos are available afterwards. It's a completely transparent process, which I appreciate greatly. Just so happens that our event that will probably bring up some of these topics is on the first day. Right. Um, but again, we're only talking about science and data, uh, <laughs> not taking a stance one way or the other, um, and trying to be, you know, just really drive that. Um, but it will be it will be quite interesting because I think uh, social consumption one there's uh, recreational benefits to that. You know, there's you know cannabis cafes all over right. the world in Amsterdam. There's a recreational benefit to that. But some of the arguments that I've heard and you know, I think are somewhat valid, are valid, are, um, you know, patients, um, you know, older patients, for example, right now that they live in, or people that live in Section 8 housing, um, you cannot consume cannabis, you can't, um, you know, uh, grow cannabis. So if you have a medical card, and you're a medical patient, and you can't consume in your own house, where can you consume? And Mm -hmm. if it's illegal to do on the street, therefore, you know, what are you going to do? Um, and so that's that's a, a really important aspect to consider. Maybe there could be medical clubs. I, I don't yeah. know. I mean, the yeah. the CCC could, you know, it'll be interesting to see what they do, if they delay, if they keep it. Um, just, from, oh, good, yeah. just to follow up, do you, uh, do you know what their reasoning is specifically as, uh, like, opposed to these cannabis cafes? Uh, you mean uh, Governor Baker? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure. I haven't read up their rationale. I mean, mm-hmm. I would assume um, that they probably want to roll this out in a phased manner okay. and um, kind of be able to see, um, you know, just how it's going to work okay. and, and roll that out later. Mm-hmm. Or... 
Um, not entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, just commentary from the point of view, not even of like access or justice or anything like this, but just the, the whole notion of limiting, limiting it to your home um, is almost kind of ruining some of the major like social effects that it, that it could have. Uh, it almost kind of feels like uh, reefer madness yeah. type, <laughs> type, cons- type paranoia, yeah. you know. Yeah, a bit. And uh, I think there is, once you, once you start, to, it becomes a normal part of society. That's when you remove stigma and then exactly. you realize that it's actually safer than alcohol. Right. So I think there's a, a real need for, you know, behavior change. And behavior change theory takes a long time, right? right. To mm-hmm. change somebody's idea or stigmas around... Something there's a variety of interventions that are necessary, right? right? And public behavior change campaigns and awareness campaigns, mm-hmm. I know, is something that is going to be, you know, happening with the CCC. And I've heard several advocates call for, you know, a really good behavior change to counter this, you know, program to counter the stigma rather than continuing to perpetuate youth prevention only, yeah. you know, young people and... And all of that's important because the data does show, you know, that yeah. it has, uh, you know, some effects if you're a consumer below the age of 25 for a consistent period of time. But um, I think I, I'm very much impressed with the CCC and their understanding that, you know, they, you know, in, in trying to be very rational about timing what's realistic and about trying to move past that reefer right. madness. Stigma. Right. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think that this is the whole public stigma in in whatever you're trying to do, whether it's research or whether it's uh, trying to substitute for other drug addictions, uh, anything like that is is built upon how the public conceives of it in the social sense. And I want to get back to that, but really quick, you were talking about businesses and the encouragement of small businesses in this area, and that's part of what your event is about, is is transferring those skills. Um, But I know just in a more general sense, when we're talking about um, how the legalization process is going nationally and states do it um, one at a time. One of the problems and ideas that's been raised is that, all right, when you get two states or particularly two contiguous states that legalize, then they're going to be in a competition with each other to deregulate uh, such that they can attract more business and that's going to create a big opening for big business. Um, there was a big fear for a while at least of big marijuana in the same way that there was big tobacco. And so mm-hmm. in what in what way is that either happening or not happening here and how do we prevent that? Yeah, I you know, this is the this is it, it is happening and it's part of this whole big debate of yeah. uh, small business and big business. Right. A lot of the um, the, in the medical cannabis program, there are some pretty steep requirements for fiscal pockets mm-hmm. to be able to apply, set up brick and mortar, um, and so that required a lot of capital, um, and a lot of companies um, came in many years ago that may not have been Massachusetts-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now, um, you know, there's a lot of companies that have invested a lot of money and, you know, are, are sort of already there. Um, and the small business and the small farmer and the small co-op now, uh, you know, in the new adult use framework, the fees are less, the, you know, the barrier to entry financially right. is still pretty high, but it's, a, it's lower than it was before. Right. Um, and so some of the big debates are, you know, what does that licensure fee look like? And if you're having tiered levels of cultivation, 
and you know so you can allow for small business to be a cultivator license as well and not pay those taxes um, but yes the the fear of big business not only moving into Massachusetts but into cannabis is is not unfounded um, right. I think there's tobaccos investing um, you know pharmaceutical companies are investing right. uh, in research at least and whether or not that's fully public or not I you know uh, to be, <laughs> exactly to be uh, debated but um, I did hear recently at one of the uh, events at MIT about that big business and how um, you know in Canada a lot of a lot of money is changing hands and companies are being acquired and and so that wave is already happening. Um, in Massachusetts, though, they're very, um, there's been a lot of advocacy and thought put into how to keep business local. And so some of the draft regulations require a uh, certain you know, number of years of residents, a uh, certain number of percentage of your residents being from localities um, specifically, and really trying to uh, think more about how do we engage the, in the farming community. Mm -hmm. Right. When you say those frameworks, do you mean that varies on a municipal basis or is that a statewide? Uh, that would be the state's regulation. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so because each municipality will then follow what the okay. state, yeah. what the state has. So, um, but I think the small farmer in, um, I mean, one, it's, it's cities that have are low income, disproportionately affected by the drug war, that's very, very important too in terms of access is you know, part of this event too. But it's also access for those small farmers that are in Western Massachusetts that want to get into this industry mm -hmm. and really um, you know, can use existing cooperative mechanisms and shares and farm shares to actually uh, have a lively role in it. And one of the big one of the exciting groups that we have coming on Monday is uh, Farm Bug Co-op. Um, this uh, colleague, Eric Schwartz, has been going around Massachusetts to find farmers and recruit them and educate them and try and uh, really, you know, let them know what's happening because I think a lot of the news that happens in Boston, you know, we all hear it in Boston, but, uh, you know, trickles out not as mm, not right, as commonly right. so mm -hmm. a lot of people may not know a lot of these opportunities or what are the updates that are happening and how they can get engaged so uh, thinking about access from that perspective really really important too and then the um, just generally disabled uh, populations and access mm. I think is uh, really an important one since a lot of these farmers aren't aware of um, these uh, new opportunities in this industry uh, do you think the initial demand shock um, will result in uh, shortages like it has in other states after they've rolled out recreational marijuana? That's a, also an interesting debate right now that's happening. One of the, uh, you know, a leading patient advocacy group um, is advocating for a patient safety net to ensure that there is at least some reserve of medical cannabis for patients yeah. if, the, if the rush happens. And, um, you know, I won't be able to speak authoritatively on it because uh, mm -hmm. I follow more of the, the research right. issues. Um, you know, but I think there's been some good recommendations. I don't know what they'll come out with, but I heard a good recommendation um, that, you know, would basically, um, you know, ensure that uh, in the license scheme that you, well, one, running out, this is actually the opposite 
mm-hmm. problem. Um, you know, I think they're trying to really work on how they're not going to run out. Some people are advocating for cultivator licenses to come out first so that they yeah. can actually cultivate that and then sense. move retail. It makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. The implant <laughs> can't grow a plant overnight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of groups that are <laughs> that are that are looking at that. Uh, but on the flip side, in some states like Oregon, um, you know, cultivators are are producing too much and the market prices oh. go down, wow. and then you can't get rid of your product. <laughs> and so that's another flip reverse side interesting um, market economics problem and uh, heard a really interesting suggestion about um, only allowing uh, you know cultivators um, to cultivate a particular amount or, or square footage if they can sell up to 85% of that product mm-hmm. so that would keep the market in check okay. I'm not an economist I'm a public health doctor by training yeah. but it's all yeah. really interesting are you an economist yeah. there you go get to work on it Evan <laughs> there's a lot of economics in this yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the yeah. tax structure, all of that's really interesting. Yeah, I was actually interested also, and I know you're not an economist, yeah. but really quick, um, if, if you know if the, like, the taxes are earmarked to certain, like, you know, in Nevada, for instance, like, taxes for marijuana specifically go to education. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if it's the same here in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. So they uh, lowered the tax rate here to deal with the black market, actually, so yeah. that they would be able to compete with the pricing on the black market. And so right. the tax too right. high... So that was, um, I think, a very conscious um, decision. How they plan to use the tax uh, money, so there's the diversity fund mm-hmm. that's going to be established that will be uh, a resource for um, you know, those most marginalized to be able to access grants and right. business opportunities. There's also going to be money that is allocated towards youth prevention programs and mm-hmm. impaired driving and... And that sort of uh, agenda through the Wellness Fund, which is an existing fund in Massachusetts. But actually, what C3RN, our company, has been um, advocating for, and fingers crossed that they do it, is contribute some of that tax money like other states have to um, advanced medical research, too. So other states like Colorado has you know, partnered with the University of Colorado to give some tax funding. However, that's not fully consistent in, in these other states yet. I know that Pennsylvania is doing kind of a good job of starting out to uh, have used that money for research. Mm-hmm. Um, but then some of the, the tax money also goes back into sort of their general fund and then to be able to administer the program through the CCC. So. Right. We, we've only got a, a few minutes here, and I want to get to um, the, the uh, medical treatment issues of opioids in just a minute. But real quick, you've mentioned a few times the fund for um, youth prevention, and you've mentioned uh, research into impaired driving. Uh, just so we get a, an idea of the nuts and bolts here for the listeners, I mean, what is going to be going on on that front uh, in terms of youth prevention? because the evidence does show that that can impair uh, 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 growth and then not physical growth, um, development. Um, and then also on the impaired driving front, how, how is uh, the state going to start dealing with impaired driving? So both of those are really, um, you know, again, important topics. And, um, and so um, I'm not entirely sure how they're going to, like, distribute the money. I think they right. definitely are going to have a behavior change program for, right. like, a public awareness campaigns and right. uh, different marketing for youth prevention and also probably funding for uh, cities and towns for schools. Mm-hmm. But it's also not only youth prevention of cannabis, it's substance use in general. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's, you know, a, right. a positive thing. Right. Um, in terms of the impaired driving, that's an interesting um I was just on a call this morning with a 
a researcher from UMass Boston who's been working on an impairment app. And there's other couple of researchers and different technology companies that are looking at how do you crack this nut mm. of calling somebody impaired, uh, you know, driving mm. while high on cannabis. Um, so it's it's not a f- core focus of, of what C3RN is right, right. Uh, going to do. Uh, we are keeping in touch with those colleagues, and uh, I think there's two very different camps. Uh, mm-hmm. People that you know uh, think that you know impaired driving is is increasing over right. you know after legalization, and then other researchers that say it's decreasing. So right. a polarized topic. Where, where, <laughs> like so, just hearing generally in the news, like uh, once in a while I'll hear this scare story where it's like, oh, Colorado traffic incidents are up this much since legalization, and then you know you'll hear the other you know happy story where you know nothing happened. Yeah. Where is this different data coming from? Yeah. I mean, how are we getting such different pictures? I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. Yeah. Are there more accidents or are there not? So yeah. yeah. What, what's that about? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, research is interesting. It uh, depends on who you who funds it and how you do your research <laughs> mm. design is how your questions are answered. So my, my rule of thumb is always look at the methods and the funders mm. and, and the design of, uh, you know, how the data was collected to know really how much grain of salt you should give it. Right. Um, and I think there are different, you know, a lot of the work that um, the articles that have come out saying that youth prevention does not increase and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. They're using standard data sources that right. exist that have been measuring this over time. I just think there's heightened awareness and some there's some people that don't really, you know, want cannabis to be legal uh, or, or available um, or, you know, just have a really serious uh, public health safety and risk concerns, which are legitimate. Mm-hmm. Right, so right. Um, I think the state, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of companies that are coming up with what's going to be their magic, magic bullet of a technology to identify impaired driving that all the police right. forces will have to buy. I think, you know, if, there's uh, several of those. Um, well, so sorry. I, I just want to correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the the research that I'm aware of regarding this stuff is one of the reasons it's so hard to tell is because if you're a more frequent user, it seems to impair you less, and if you're a less frequent user, then it impairs you more. And so tolerance. Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so. I mean, how could you actually really measure it? Right. I mean, the the right. it's a real conundrum because right. you can't, you know, and it stays in your blood, you know, in your yeah. urine. Right, <laughs> so right. like, you can't really tell when somebody's acutely right. high or right. intoxicated or not. Right. Uh, people are looking into uh, eye structure, how your eye structure changes. Um, the colleague I was on, or the researcher I was on the phone with today has four different ways that they are using to develop a metric to identify impaired driving. Right. Um, it, and the problem is, like, with alcohol, fundamentally, I mean, you can have a very high tolerance, but even being a little bit drunk is going to impair your driving enough where you shouldn't be on the road. Right. Um, right. On the other hand, there are, there's, there's, can you explain even how it works with marijuana such that there are people who can develop a certain tolerance where, you know, they're generally their motor skills are, are pretty sharp if they're a frequent enough user and have a high enough tolerance. Right. I'll punt this question to Dr. Stacy Gruber. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Who's Sounds working good. on a full impaired driving. She's got okay. a driving yeah. simulator and really trying to understand <laughs> all of these nitty gritty bits um, yeah. about it. Um, she's uh, at Harvard at McLean University and okay. is leading researcher in this area. Yeah. So yeah, opioids. Um, real quick, I think we should definitely cover yeah. that. Um, it's, it's sad to say, real quick, but we, we do have to yeah. touch on this. Um, um, so, 
I guess uh, my question with regards to opioids is, is it, is it as a substitute for opioids, cannabis being a substitute um, to treat pain, or is it like treating addiction with cannabis? So the, the, the science is yet to be out. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what data exists now is secondary reviews of state level overdose data and um, saying in states with medical legal cannabis, Mm -hmm. the number of overdoses have gone down. Um, There's been some, there's been studies that look at people, patients preferring cannabis as a pain reliever than opioids. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some, uh, right now the, um, so it's not necessarily to treat addiction necessarily, it's to, it's basically as a a therapeutic alternative. Mm or even potentially a preventative right. measure um, in the sense that if you offered somebody uh, CBD, the non-psychoactive, when they got their tooth pulled uh, mm-hmm. versus, you know, 20-oxycontin. Right. Um, right. So in, in, in my view, it could be a preventative as well as a, uh, you know, effectively, if, if it's designed effectively under uh, clinical supervision, you could really try and work as a, a therapeutic alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren has actually been quite active in this area over the last couple of years calling for the U.S. government and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control to do more research in this area. Mm-hmm. And um, as a result of her and others' advocacy, um, the CDC has changed their prescription guidelines or their substance use disorder guidelines to encourage clinicians not to test for cannabis. Mm-hmm. and to not rule uh, patients that are undergoing recovery services out if they do test for cannabis. Mm-hmm. So it's a big, important step, right? right. Um, and now, then from there, you have to take that into training clinicians about how to integrate this. A lot of the clinical community, because there's a dearth of human studies, clinical trials, real definitive evidence around these things, mm-hmm. uh, clinicians are hesitant to, the, you know, there's just need for a lot of education and, you know, working hand in hand uh, with clinical providers. So um, one of the, this is one of the key core, core parts of what we want to do as C3RN, um, primarily with our background in clinical integration of medicine and algorithms and the fact that Massachusetts is one of the top five leading states of the opioid epidemic. Mm, and right. it's a really serious issue here. Um, everybody that you talk to is knows somebody that's been touched by right. the epidemic. That's, yeah, that's one of the things that, yeah, I think we've definitely covered on the podcast before we've done episodes on opioids. And um, it is that sort of, uh, you know, connection. Everyone knows someone. And so, how does that knowledge, just sort of social knowledge, play into the way you do your advocacy when you said earlier, you know, you're going to these small towns that might have had the vote against the referendum and you need to try to convince them not to be one of those cities that, uh, that bans it. How does that play into the way you connect with the people there? Yeah, it's really a, it's, it's, I think it's going to be a continued advocacy effort. Right. Uh, I think a lot of people see, you know, cannabis is just another drug. You mm-hmm. know, what do you mm-hmm. think a, one drug could fit another drug? Right. And that's a lack of education on the fact that, you know, all the CC guidelines I just told you and the research that's out there. Right. Um, it's mainly a prohibitionist uh, sort of mindset. Um, but because the opioid epidemic is so... Um, it is so pervasive and very, you know, uh, it reaches everybody. It's a very sensitive topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the moment you bring up opioid, 
you know, the room typically hushes. Right. Right. Um, and we have, and this is even at uh, the CCC meetings, I think we're probably, you know, one of a handful of organizations that have explicitly called out for the state to take a stance on this and to work with Governor Baker and the opioid, uh, all of the money to do research and all of this to have a small private project. Mm-hmm. Let's figure this out. Um, you know, there are examples of how you can integrate cannabis uh, into a you know substance use to recovery program. Um, I think it'll be really important to continue to advocate on that and and do it at a uh, clinical and research level Mm -hmm. um, so that it's not just, it's a scientific inquiry, it's not about, oh, this is another drug for another drug, you know, it can be in controlled settings, you can use it, document that model and then be able to scale up. Um, So our event in April um, will likely, I mean, will be focused on opioids and cannabis and uh, continuing to talk with uh, Boston University School of Public Health and other schools about um, how do we really kind of seriously look at this. And right. it's a very provocative issue um, and very contentious, especially when our governor is, is, you know, we have a national or a state level emergency of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, just the current debate about adult use cannabis right. with, our, with our leadership now. So, right. but we'll keep the fight. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and yeah. spending your time and your, sharing your knowledge. Uh, real quick, I'll toss it back to you to uh, update the listeners again about the event on Monday uh, and then also the event. So the event on Monday is focused on the, the social disparities, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the event you said in April is going to be focused on opioid treatment. Correct. And so um, I'll toss it to you to give the details of that information and also maybe just mention your collaboration with the, the Student Alliance for Secular uh, Drug yeah. Policy. Great, yeah. Uh, so C3RN is quite excited to partner uh, with Students for Sensible Drug Policy, SSDP. Mm. Um, they're a leading national student group that works to um, advocate for uh, you know change in regulations and laws uh, to fight the drug war. Um, so we've partnered with Joe Gilmore to launch a scholarship fund for students who are interested in coming to our events. Mm-hmm. Um, and to really engage the academic community and students' uh, dialogue around this issue. So we've offered, um, and BU students, you're welcome. Mm-hmm. Go, on your, your, but go on Monday. <laughs> Contact <Yeah>. Joe <laughs> at massreccouncil.com uh, to get your free ticket. And you can visit www.cannacenterofexcellence.org backslash register to find out, uh, to get information about the event on Monday. It'll be at Roxbury Community College uh, from 6 to 9.30 p.m. Uh, We're expecting about 400 people in attendance and uh, the speakers will be uh, Tito Jackson, the former mayoral candidate. Um, There will be his campaign manager, Tashonda Vincent Lee, will moderate a panel discussion of Commissioner Shalene Title, Chanel Lindsay, Sonia Espinoza, Ellen Brown, Stephen Mandile, and Eric Martin, who's a former Patriots Super Bowl champion. And so we'll be talking about access and equity to um, economic engagement in the cannabis industry among all of these different populations, but also uh, access to medical cannabis for veterans, football players, uh, people of color, low income, um, disabled, etc. So. We will also have DJ Logic, if you've ever heard of DJ Logic. be spinning in 15 different organizations. <laughs> I'm not um, him, but I'm sure he's He's great. Cool. Yeah. yeah, it'll be his birthday. So wish him a happy birthday if you come and see him. 
Um, and we'll have 15 different community groups, activists, and companies there to network and, and get information from. Fantastic. Well, among the 400 in attendance will be Evan and I, uh, so that's another reason to go. And um, also, uh, we will have Joe Gilmore on the program after this event uh, in sometime in mid-March. We're going to talk to him about some of the stuff that we learned there. So we encourage you all to go. Check it out. Uh, there are student scholarships. Yeah. And we'll hope we'll make 400. <laughs> We've yeah, got yeah, 200 exactly. so far, so come. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, uh, thanks so much, audience, for listening, and we'll keep looking for the common thread. Thank you.